The following presentation is part of the six-week Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation class offered at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight is week four. It's nice to see people back. There's been interesting research on how difficult it is for human beings <coughs> to learn new things. And uh, it's like we can, it's anything really, uh, changing your diet, changing your exercise regimen. It's like there's something a little bit elastic where for a period of time we can sort of set something new in motion, but we tend to fall back into our old habits, right? So in terms of mindfulness practice, so generally our habit is to go through life somewhat superficially, and uh, feeling okay about the tendency of our mind to fall into falling into patterns of distraction, worrying about this, you know, endlessly thinking what will the next season of Downton Abbey have in store for it, or, you know, these sorts of things that can become, like, fill up our lives. And then... Uh, we notice it, and we notice the effects of being superficial and distracted and disconnected, and we get inspired, and that inspiration takes us a little bit, but we tend to fall back into our habits of distraction. So, now that we're in our fourth week, you might notice, start noticing some resistance, like as much as you might think that sitting every day or practicing throughout the day is a good thing, makes so much sense. It's like really hard to do it, even though you know it's a good thing. And that's a very familiar pattern. So one way to break through this is you actually have to get interested in the effects of the practice. It's like human beings are willing to work pretty hard if there's a real, direct, immediate sense of feedback, like you're getting some, the work is leading to some fruit. In a lot of ways, you know, we have this idea that I'll practice for years and years, and then 20 years down the road, I'll be saintly. You know, I'll be calm, I'll be a nice person or a wise person. But that's not going to work for us. So we have to get interested in not even at the end of a sit, like, well, what, what is the benefit? But it has to be moment to moment to moment. And this is really, it goes right to the heart of the practice. One way to, and this is good, like, even for yourself, how you articulate the practice for yourself. It's like one of the things we're doing is moment by moment to, by moment is in observing the mind, knowing the mind, the activity of the mind, the mind is actually discerning the skillfulness or unskillfulness of whatever it is that the mind is doing in the moment. So like, if I'm in a sort of a greedy place right now and I'm like really greedy for you guys to like me or really greedy for you guys to think this is a good talk or a good class, then if I'm being mindful to some degree, then I'm going to notice that that greediness, that 
leaning forward, trying hard, that right here and now it's unskillful because the constriction or the tension in my body and mind is the immediate feedback correlating with the trying to get you to like me, you know, the neediness of needing you to like me. And so I'm seeing that unskillfulness, the effect, the unpleasant effect of greed in the mind right now. I don't need anybody else to tell me that greed causes problems. I see it. In the same way, if if we're in a moment in our life and we're cultivating a sense of trust or we're cultivating a sense of clarity, like a real interest in seeing clearly or being close, showing up to the experience, being less afraid, more fearless, then we can see right then, if we're watching, noticing the effect of that. Like, is that a skillful effect? Is the heart, the heart, the mind, body releasing tension? Is that the effect of that way of being, that way of relating, that attitude in the mind? This is what's going to keep you doing the practice. So if you really have in some sense, like, oh yeah, mindfulness just makes a lot of sense. Cultivating this balanced awareness where there's ease and alertness in the body and mind, that just makes so much sense. I can't imagine how that would be harmful, counterproductive. Well, then the question that should come to mind, well, how am I going to move in that direction? And we just have to understand that there isn't any real change unless the mind is tuned in to the benefit that comes from that. Human beings, and not just human beings, any creature, basically, isn't going to do something unless it's clear of results, the results that come from it. I mean, that's how civilization gets built. There's some sort of, you know, immediate result. I mean, a lot of it is neurotic, of course, you know, what human beings do, the big things we build, (laughs) even within our own minds, you know, we work really hard at our fantasies. But in a neurotic way, we're getting something from that fantasizing. Even worrying. Which is so, when we have a little distance, we see how painful it is to be worrying. But while we're worrying, it feels like we're getting something. But now with mindfulness, we're not just looking on the surface. So when we are, when the mind is engaged in some activity like worrying, fantasizing, a wondering, analyzing, comparing, judging. We're not just looking at the surface and maybe we're getting a little excitement or delight in judging somebody. But we're noticing more deeply how tight the body and mind is. So there may be on the surface some juice, delight in sort of judging somebody, like I'm better than you. But when we look more subtly, we see that the actual quality of the body-mind is tight when we're judging. And we see right then and there, like, oh, this isn't what I want to set in motion. This is what's being set in motion. Is this what I want? Is this the heart I want to cultivate? When we come to the end of our lives, when we're in a really difficult time, what sort of heart or mind do we want showing up for that difficult moment? Because this is the heart we're setting in motion right now 
So if we're practicing superficiality or distractedness or practicing worrying or being disconnected or in denial, being fearful, then we'll be really good at it later in those important moments when we'd really like to be clear and fearless, balanced, loving, wise, right? So first point then is, at, at week four, we start noticing some resistance. The initial aspiration or intention, like this is a good idea, it carries us for a few weeks, especially those who are brand new. But then it just seems like, even though it still may seem like a good idea, it seems like other things are more important. So that just means you have to really look moment to moment how a moment of being mindful creates some, like creates the space to be skillful in a way that wouldn't otherwise exist. And that moment of being skillful allows the heart to avoid what would otherwise be stressful and entangling and heavy for the mind and body. And we really see that as a kind of liberation, like even in very simple terms, when we're mindful, it's a liberating way an enlivening way to live our life, to handle whatever comes up in our life. So the motivation is right there, but we have to actually see that it, that it's functional, that it's productive, that it's like it works. Because we're not going to do it for very long on faith, on somebody's advice, even if they the talk we heard or the book we read was really inspirational or just logically it makes a lot of sense and it only carries so far. And then at some point we have to start tapping into the actual effect of the practice that we're seeing in the mind and the heart. <coughs> That's what keeps you doing it. Like I practice almost every day now for over 30 years and I really see the power of just that gradual transformation of my mind, just putting in the time, day after day, whatever I can do. And then sometimes going on retreat when I can. And then the more you do the formal practice, the more we're able to practice informally. It's just the mind knows what it's doing. So the rest of the day can also be practice time, here and there. We remember, the mind remembers. Oh yeah, clear, alert, relaxed, presence. It's like a no-brainer. It just makes so much sense. Life works so much better when the mind is balanced in that way. The second point I wanted to make before we do our sit tonight is that week four I normally talk about working with distractions. And one of the real turning points in practice is initially we have a relatively naive sense that the reason we're meditating is to get to that really clear, calm, smooth place. It's like we're in that effortless, mindful presence. It's very peaceful, steady, effortless. And it just feels like a gift. And we're really grateful for those moments. And they are just moments often. Maybe sometimes a little longer than a moment. Several moments, several seconds, a minute or two. Where the mind, the heart, the body has a sense of wholeness, integration, peacefulness, steadiness, smoothness. 
And it's just as great. Normally we just get attached to those really nice states of mind when they come in meditation practice. So they're nice. It's definitely nice when those the mind comes into balance like that. And it's really okay to deeply appreciate those moments, those periods of time when the mind is in that deep balance. But generally, there's a lot more learning in the more usual experience of getting distracted, noticing the mind is distracted, finding the intention to come back to the present moment. And that whole movement of coming back to the present moment isn't neurotic, meaning it's not coming out of fear. The mind isn't afraid of being distracted. And it's not greedy to get back to the present moment. That coming back to the present moment is a healthy, balanced, wise movement of the mind. It's like the mind realizes that being caught up is stressful. And out of compassion, without you thinking about, oh, I'm compassionate for myself, but just naturally, it's a force of nature. Compassion is a force of nature. The mind sees itself being entangled, being tight. And in seeing the tightness, it responds by letting go of what's not necessary. It responds by being aware that sitting is like this, breathing in is like this, hearing is like this, this is how it is now, can this be okay? So that natural, organic returning to the present moment, that's what the practice is about. Getting lost in thought, getting caught up, getting entangled, noticing it. In a sense, the dukkha, the suffering or stress of our mind getting caught up in something. Am I a good meditator? Is this the right place to learn from? You know, whatever the drama might be. Noticing that, finding a way to reestablish balance is the work we're doing. So if you tell yourself you're bad, because you're getting distracted and then coming back to the present moment and getting distracted and then coming back to the present moment, getting distracted, hating yourself for getting distracted, and then noticing that that hating yourself for getting distracted isn't helping, and then coming back to the present moment and back and lost and back and lost and back. If you judge yourself for that, you're missing the point. That is the, that's the sort of lifting weights or doing your laps, that is the work of practice. Starting over again. Starting over again. So don't be afraid of distractions when they arise. Don't believe the thought, I can't practice because my mind is distracted. Finding a way to come back to balance with a mind that wants to think, wants to worry, wants to plan, that is the practice. Working with distractions is the practice. Make sense? So don't believe the thought, I can't practice with a mind like this. I can't practice when I have so much pain in my knee. I can't practice when my life is so busy. I can't practice, I'm too sleepy. I can't practice, I have ADHD. I can't practice, you know, I've had a lot of loss in my life, a lot of emotional pain. I've had an abusive childhood and, and a lot of that pain is coming up. I mean, these things may be definitely true, but really, there's no excuse for not practicing. It's helpful for anybody. It's just a matter of how you're going to practice. So don't believe the, the thought, I can't practice. 
Mindfulness doesn't care what it's being aware of. There is a way to be aware of the mind being distracted, and that is the process of coming back into balance. Knowing that the mind is all caught up is a balancing of the mind. So instead of being lost in the activity of that distraction, now the mind is beginning to understand, oh, it is caught. There is greed. There is aversion operating now. And it's like this. So in a sense, the mind, the awareness, it's stepping out of the drama, and it's realizing, oh, it's like this. It's like you were hired to act in a play, and you're such a good actor, you forget you're acting, you know? And then at some point, you in a sense, you step out and go, oh, yeah, I'm just an actor in this play. Or you're watching a movie or reading a book, and you get lost in the drama. And then you realize, wait a minute, it's not as scary as it seems. This is a movie. It's just a movie, you know? We It's like we remember the peripheral vision, like we see, oh, that's just a television screen. And then there's a space around it, in the space of this room. Oh, it's just, I'm paying money to be scared. You know, that's all it is. It's just a little drama being known, and it's okay. And we do that in life. This is how we wake up from distractions. So notice it, and it's nice to kind of have a visual image like, like we have terms, don't we? Like getting sucked in. I got really sucked into that drama. You know, oh, I stepped out of that drama. I have perspective. I have space around the drama, right? So we even have this in our conventional language. But this is what we're learning. We sit. We give our attention something simple to do, like know the breath coming in, know the breath going out. It's just sort of a like just remembering, oh, yeah, I'm sitting here on the couch. Sitting here on the couch, sitting here on the couch is like this. It's just a, a grounding, a, like a punctuating the moment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Breathing in is like this. So that makes it easier to notice when the mind gets sucked in to some distraction, right? And then when you're sucked into distraction, the moment you become mindful of it, notice what it's like to be sucked in. Don't reflexively go back. Oh, I've got to get back to the breath. Take a moment or two or three or four not four minutes, four moments, right? At least to notice that it's like this. I don't have to be afraid of being distracted. Knowing that the mind is distracted, reacting to pain in the knee, thinking about something on the to-do list, knowing that is the practice. So why rush, right? So let that be a, a moment of real composure. Oh yeah, the mind's distracted. It's caught. It's attached. It's identified. It wants something. It's afraid of something. It's interested in something. And it's like this. Knowing this mind state, knowing this body state is like this. Opening to it, receiving this mind-body experience as it actually is, is like this. So don't, working with distractions, don't feel like you have to rush back to the object your anchor. Take a moment, acknowledge distraction. That's your first moment of balance. Oh yeah, this is how it is. This is how it feels. And if the distraction is very seductive, it may cause tension to try to come back to the breath or your hearing or your sensations of the body sitting, whatever your anchor is. You may need to stay with the distraction for a while until it ends on its own. 
whatever that drama is, that entanglement is, if you have enough space, even though it's seductive, you're not feeding it, you're not identifying with it, but you're just like knowing, oh yeah, it's just this being known. You can even use this language in your mind, you can even name it, judging is being known. Fear in the heart is being known. Not liking the pain in my back is being known. So you can use language like this in your mind, silently of course, if it's helpful. Don't feel like you have to, but it's one of the techniques you can use strategically when it's useful. To stabilize until whatever that drama, that reactivity, whatever that distraction is, like everything in the universe, it has a life and then it ends. If all of our distractions didn't end, can you imagine what our mind would be like right now? So, whatever almost infinite number of distractions there have been in our mind, in our life, they have all ceased. The next one will cease too. The question is, will we be, are we willing to be there in the space of the present moment and notice, oh yeah, that drama is ceasing. That worry is no longer there. That desire for Haagen-Dazs or Ben & Jerry's Chunky Monkey is no longer there. It's gone. It has ceased. Actually, that's such a powerful insight to see desire cease. Because when desire is strong in the mind, it seems like it's not going to go away until I gratify it. But think about how many strong desires we've had that haven't been gratified. Where did they go? Well, they ceased. Right? So will this one cease? I've got to scratch this itch. I've got this, you know, it's driving me crazy. Well, let's see. It's just like this. Just sensations being known, sensations being known, strong desire being known. It's just this being known. And then all of a sudden you notice it's not here. It's just the body sitting being known. Breathing in is being known. It's such a revelation to know that desire comes and goes. Anger comes and goes. Confusion comes and goes. Every Whatever drama the mind can construct, it comes, it lasts, and it goes. So this is when you have enough stability, enough space, you can notice this about distraction. That too, it might take actually, sometimes if it's a really entangled distraction, it might be even a couple minutes that you're just doing your best to stay with what is predominant in your experience. And this is where you might use mental noting might be really useful to name it, or to even use a phrase like, oh, it's just this being known. And really emphasize being known, that part of the phrase. It's just this thought, being known. Because right? it's just something being known here and now. That sense that it's being known actually creates the space of wisdom, we say. And then, when there's nothing predominant, strong distractions that are arising then really develop the continuity with your anchor because that will settle the mind. You'll, you'll experience deeper states of calm, uh, inner states of wholeness. We call it mental bliss. It's really, it can be quite beautiful when you get periods of time where there really aren't significant distractions wavering in the mind because then, in a sense, the energy the mind gathers in the activity of like knowing the breathing and all of a sudden, it's not just the mind knowing the breathing, the mind is also knowing how beautiful it is for the mind to be collected or gathered 
in that experience. So it's knowing two things, the object, the meditation object. So like you might even use a meditative word when you're breathing in. Some of you do like when you're breathing in, you say knowing. And when you're breathing out, you might say releasing. Or some people just use the word in as you're breathing in and then repeat the word out as you're breathing out. So there are many ways to do this. But whatever your anchor is, the mind gets some continuity, unbroken, not wavering. And then there begins to be also the experience of the collected, gathered, unified mind. So in a sense, in these two objects, you don't separate them. It's like the wholeness of the attention is not distinct from knowing the breath coming in and going out. They're one and the same. And even for some people, light, the mind starts to appear light, as if there's an inner light. Some of you might even be experiencing that. Some people just have a natural talent for concentration, and they start having unusual experiences. And it's great, but you don't need to go looking for them. But I'm just saying that in case that's happening to you, don't worry about it. Just keep doing what you're doing, because that's a deep psychological healing to experience unified states of mind. That's why people like to do models, you know, they build these ships, you know, or they knit, or they do these things that gather the attention, because it's a natural, pleasant experience. It's a healing experience for the mind not to be dissipated and scattered and worried and fragmented. So doing it with the breath, body sensations, hearing, really good. So basically, there's this stance when there are a lot of distractions, then we develop the wisdom that allows the mind. Wisdom is the same as space or perspective, right? So when we have lots of activity, lots of dramas, lots of distractions, then we're doing that dance of noticing the mind's distracted, stabilizing the attention for at least a moment with the distraction and then returning, or stabilizing the attention with that distraction and then staying with the distraction because it's really predominant for a longer period of time, and then coming back to the primary anchor, right? So part of our sitting will be the stance between distraction and returning, distraction and returning, distraction and returning. We develop a lot of wisdom, a lot of space perspective doing that. It's not often pleasant to do that kind of practice, but just because it's unpleasant doesn't mean you're not learning a lot, gaining a lot. And other people will have much more of the steady, calm, peaceful. And people will be envious of those people because they talk about the practice as being so calm and so peaceful and so tranquil. And then we're doing this sort of dance of getting distracted, coming back, getting distracted, coming back. We think, I'm a failure. No, you're learning different things. Some people are learning how to develop deeper and deeper states of tranquility And some people are learning how not to take personally the activity of the mind. The mind does this, okay, that's being now. The mind does this, okay, that's being now. The mind has a few moments of being with the breath, okay, that's being now. I don't get greedy about the steadiness with the breath. I don't get averse with these negative thoughts that keep coming up, these worries that keep coming up, these beautiful fantasies that keep coming up. I just let it be the dance of life. It's just stuff being now. As one teacher said, empty phenomena rolling on. Just stop, just stop coming and going. So, we don't always get to choose the kind of practice that's going to arise. But whatever does arise, we turn it into practice. So if we get that steady, 
unwavering mind that's just with the breath and that nice, beautiful sinking into a state of tranquility. We just learn how to let that tranquility deepen as far as it can. Let the peace blossom as much as it can. Let the mind turn to silence and stillness and peace and space. Because it's very healing, those deep states of concentration. But when the mind is really all over the place, then we learn not to be bothered, not to take it personally. Not to get tight, no matter what's happening. No matter what pain arises in the body, not to layer tightness over it. No matter what dramas arise in the mind, not to add tightness to it. Not to react or respond with tightness. That's the practice when the mind is moving a lot. Okay? So let's stretch your legs and then we'll sit for half an hour. Feel free to stand if you want. Release as much tension as you can so you'll be comfortable for 30 minutes. And then whenever you feel ready, you can sit back down. Listen to the body, cultivating a comfortable, beautiful posture that works for your body tonight as best you can. Deeply listening to the body. And a lot of people find it helpful to take a few long, deep, slow breaths. But no straining, just do it in an easy way. As if you have all the time in the world to breathe in and out. more times and appreciate the integrity, the wholesomeness of grounding in this experience of sitting, embodying the body. And after the next exhalation, allow the breath to continue on its own. Trusting the body to breathe. And as we've been doing, we'll listen to the sound of the bell.
And let's continue listening. This beautiful, receptive quality of the mind. The mind that hears. And just see, can the mind leave the sounds alone? It's almost a willingness, like a willingness to be bathed in this great ocean of sounds coming and going. Great diversity of the sounds. Hearing is like this. Is it possible for the mind to leave it alone, to just allow hearing to happen and noticing the effortless, effortlessness of hearing? And for some people, they use the hearing as the anchor. So just continue that way if you're one of those people who've been working with hearing as an anchor. Otherwise, you can cultivate the same receptive presence with the sensations of the body sitting now. Learning with practice to include the full range of sensations that are coming and going. Everything is allowed. Every sensation belongs here and now, allowed to come and go. In other words, feeling the experience of the body sitting, trusting. And again, notice can this be okay? Can the mind, the heart, leave it alone? Just allow the sensations to come and go as they do. Not personalizing. It's just sensation being known. 
for those who work with the breath as a primary anchor, then just right here in the middle of feeling, knowing the body sitting, you'll find the natural experience of the breath coming in and going out. So then in a more specific way, noticing these particular sensations associated with the breathing process. Breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. And we often begin with a real devotion to the primary anchor, but then when the mind does get distracted, then just allow that to be the way it is, because it is that way. And get interested in the distraction for at least a moment, acknowledging it, accepting it, letting it cease on its own, or in a skillful way, returning the attention to the primary anchor. So we'll continue now in silence.
be willing to begin again and again.
when the mind is distracted, then the practice is to open to how it is. And what really assists is to be interested in any greediness, any fear or aversion that's present in the mind. This will help to help the mind to open to the distraction as it actually is, to recognize the greed, the wanting, or to recognize the fear or the not wanting. Otherwise, the mind's habit will be to to get swept away by the distraction, to get caught up in it. So you can actually note, oh, wanting, it's just wanting being known. Just not wanting being known.
after the last couple minutes. Let's practice with the mind not dependent on the anchor. So you might even want to have the eyes open a little if you usually practice with them closed. We're just going to sit for another two minutes or so, gazing down toward the floor in front, and simply recognize what it is the mind is knowing. accepting, so even if the mind is confused, then recognizing, oh, it's confusion, can this be okay? Mind can even be interested and not attached, not taking whatever it is that is being known, not taking it personal, just stop being known. Interested in what's being known, willingness to be close and at ease. We'll take a moment and stretch the body out, whatever you need to do. But this can be part of the practice too, just feeling what it's like to stretch and move the body again. So we sat for 30 minutes. You can keep this in mind when your mind says, I can't sit for 30 minutes, because you did. Maybe even a little bit longer. I can't remember. I don't think I've introduced the RAIN acronym. So let me just give you that. Did I talk about that last week? So I began the course just giving you two qualities of mind to work with. There's the relaxation side and the alertness side. And that keeps it really simple. A slightly more sophisticated version of that is the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. And so like if you're sitting and you forget completely what you're doing, you can just remember that acronym, RAIN. Okay? I'm recognizing what's predominant in the moment. If nothing's predominant, you have your anchor to recognize the next in-breath or the next out-breath, for example. So recognizing... Whatever is being known, this is being known. That's the R. That, that, that starts to ground you back into the practice. Oh yeah, the mind is just recognizing what's predominant. Oh yeah, this is what the mind is knowing. And then the A, you could probably guess, acceptance. 
So instead of acting out, reacting, we're just allowing or accepting. Oh yeah, I'm recognizing that there's pain in the back, it's being known, and I'm practicing accepting it like, well, of course, it belongs. Given the conditions as they actually are, there's pain in the back now. Can that be okay? And then the eye's interest, like not only accepting it, because you can't really accept something you're not interested in. Because being disinterested is a way of not accepting it. It's like, I don't like it, so I'm not going to be close. I'm not really going to show up for this experience. I'm going to get distracted or back away. So instead, we're interested. We're showing up. It's only when we're really showing up that we can manifest acceptance, non-fear, just allowing it to be. So recognizing, accepting, being interested. And it's the acceptance and the interest that allows for that continuity of awareness. Without continuity of mindfulness, the practice won't develop. It's easy, relatively easy for for us to recognize a moment, but to accept it and stay interested, then that's where we're really in the game. We're really practicing. And then insight starts, and that's the end. The insight into non-attachment or non-identification. And that's not something you can pretend, like I'm going to pretend to not be attached or to not be identified. But that's not the practice. It's realizing the experience of non-attachment or non-identification, like there you are with the breath, knowing the breath coming and going. But the mind's not personalizing the experience of breathing. Or you're there with the pain in the knee, but the mind isn't taking the pain personally isn't identifying or getting attached to it. And then you realize that fourth attribute, non-attachment. Oh, this is non-attachment. This is the mind not being attached. And non-attachment isn't about being disconnected. It's about being interested and accepting, but not personalizing it. Seeing the experience as a movement of nature. That pain in my knee is a natural unfolding of causes and conditions. It isn't me, that pain. There's just this knowing of this pain. That's the truth. Even with a a mind state like uh, something that normally we'd say is very personal, like feeling a lot of humiliation. You know, you pass gas in a, you know, something obviously humiliating like that in a crowd. And then there's a strong emotion of humiliation or shame. Now, when we're mindful, so there's a mind recognizing and accepting and being interested, you'll realize that that whole strong emotional response is impersonal. It's arising naturally. That's what the mind or heart does when you pass gas in a public setting and people know you did it. It feels this way. It's just this feeling being known. Can that be okay? So it doesn't mean you shouldn't apologize. It's not telling you what to do or not to do. It's just saying that personalizing our experience is unnecessary. You can be a functional, skillful, loving, wise human being without personalizing what you say, what you do, what you don't say, what you don't do, you know, your activity in the world. We don't have to personalize it. That insight comes from the continuity of mindfulness, and the continuity of mindfulness comes from recognizing what's predominant, accepting, and sustaining an interest. 
If you do those three things, you'll start having insight into the impersonal, natural unfolding of causes and conditions. This insight into non-attachment or non-identification is also an insight into freedom, right? Because attachment is the same as non-freedom. Non-attachment, non-identification is the same as freedom or liberation. So when we have these, you know, we hear like the Buddha teaches this path of awakening for full, unshakable liberation. And that sounds like really big. But what he's really talking about is the mind or the heart not attaching, not identifying. Living a full life, an engaged life, being a real human being with emotions, but not identifying with that activity of a having a personality, having emotion. It's not about not having emotion. It's about not identifying or personalizing the emotions that come and go. The good, the wholesome emotions like love and kindness and the unwholesome emotions like greed and jealousy. Not personalizing the good or the bad. It's just nature being known. I want to leave it here so we have about 20, 25 minutes to check in with each other both your successes, your difficulties, and the successes in practice. So the full range of your experience over the last few weeks. Walking practice, some of you hopefully have tried doing that. What what are you learning? What's been real challenging for you in practice? Questions that you have about the instructions. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Noel. You were mentioning about desire what people do in order to achieve that. and Achieve desire? Achieve the outcome of the desire. The desire mm-hmm. to talk to the people. A desire. And, and it just, because I find myself being much more aware of my desires, but not in that moment, it, um, I find that I there's so many things throughout my day that are being driven by desire. And um, for um, my full-time job, I work with people with spinal cord injuries. And you mentioned about an itch and try not to scratch it. I've tried to do that because I have lived with I lived with a person who couldn't scratch it. And they're forced not they're forced in a situation where they can't do it. So they're trying to create this calm. And I think, wow, what does it take for someone who's able-bodied? How strong your mind has to be when you're... I feel like sometimes I need to have something force me. So by going back to this type of work that I do for over 20 years, I think it it's taught me, it's drawn me to be aware of my desires and try to be more humble and and I'm a visual person, so I need that um, the visual um, to be able to have that ability to. Um, I can't say exactly, but it's just the desire is so strong, and yet it's so hard sometimes to sit back. And this environment here helps me become more aware of that. So yeah. I can practice it. And the, the point is to start where it's simple, like you brought up a really dramatic situation of somebody with a spinal cord injury not being able to scratch an itch. But, you know, let's just make it really simple. We sit, we choose a time, no one's making you choose, you know, 
two hours, you could choose 10 minutes or 30 minutes to sit, and we have the intention as best as possible to sit still, no matter what happens, knee pain, tickle, itch, fly walking on the forehead, you know, short of the house burning down or, you know, something terrible happening, we just sit, knowing that, well, it's okay, and that it's an experiment of truth, like we're learning a new skill that we can't learn if with every intention in the mind we act on it. We're, we're learning, like we can't really see intentions when we're acting them out. So instead we're choosing to hold the body in a relaxed and still fashion. Because it's so rich, the learning is so rich. So don't underestimate the power of the container, this form we call meditation, formal meditation practice. It's true, ultimately we want to practice mindfulness all day long. That's really what it's about. So I'm not dismissing the sort of being generally mindful through the day. But the formal practice of sitting still in a comfortable way for 30 minutes or whatever works in your life is just a, a really beautiful and intense ritual. And I recommend, if you really think this is good, I recommend that you work toward at least 30 minutes a day and then for, you know, 30, 40 lifetimes or years or whatever. But don't see it as a short-term project. Really see it as a lifelong project that will be good. And it's good now, like the Buddha says this explicitly, it's good in the beginning, meaning it delivers results immediately, good in the middle, and good in the end. You don't have to wait to the end to see the results. You should start noticing pretty early on in your practice that, oh yeah, this is actually transforming this life in a very good way. It's having good results. The more you do, the more results there are. The more sort of wishy-washy you are about it, then you get wishy-washy results. It's like so many things in life. If you really put in time, and the time you put in has integrity, not sloppy, but like you are intentional about what you're doing. So when you sit down to sit at the beginning of your 30 minutes, you take a few moments to remember what you're doing. Otherwise, you're just like, I told myself I was going to sit for 30 minutes. I really don't want to. So I'm going to do it. You know, it's like you see this with high school students. You know, they got to go to class, so they go to class, but God forbid it, they're going to learn anything. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just, or I'll go through the motions, but I'm not really going to be there. But we shouldn't play that game with ourselves. If we're going to do it, let's really remember, know what we're doing. And as soon as we get spaced out, we take a few seconds and we go, okay, now what am I doing? Oh yeah, rain. That's the shortcut back. I'm recognizing what's real here and now, what's predominant in the field of awareness or coming back to my anchor, one or the other. So recognizing, I'm practicing that to sustain that recognition, I need acceptance and interest. Otherwise, there's no sustaining the mindfulness, the recognition. And then that leads to moments or deepening of the non-attachment, non-identification, or the free flow of experiencing. Experiencing without attachment. That's called freedom. That's the fourth part. That's all we have to remember. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Question about walking meditation. When you're walking, okay, and 
you're sensing the steps, you're sensing where the ground feels like you need them different surfaces. But also, the sound comes up. Mm-hmm. You're walking over a pine cone, for example, you'll hear a crunching or something. Plus, I mean, the scenery as you're walking is going by. I mean, is it, should you ignore all that or should you incorporate it? It just depends on your mind. So, it's important. Like, I could tell you, is it Jamie? What's your name? What's your name? Jamie. Yeah, Jamie. I could tell you exactly what you should do. Like, no, no, just pay attention to the sensations of lifting, the sensations of moving, the sensations of placing and pressing, and then lifting, lifting, moving, swinging that leg forward, dropping, touching, pressing. Just pay attention to that. Don't pay attention to hearing. Don't pay attention to seeing. I could say that, and some people like, like, oh yeah, just do this, tell me what to do, I'll do it. But the fact is, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the continuity of present moment attention. So, you could either have your anchor, the the objects that you're paying attention to, more narrowly focused on just the feet, or you could be aware moment to moment on whatever is more predominant, seeing, hearing, sensing what's going on in the legs and feet, but the trouble with that more open attention is, for especially for beginners, is the mind tends to then very quickly get distracted and it's not being mindful at all. So generally, as in a, a general instruction, in the beginning, train with a very specific anchor for the attention so the mind gets a sense of what it means to be in the present moment with continuity. So not just a moment of feeling the foot on the ground, but to sustain that. So that means you have to notice the lifting and the notice the movement forward and the notice the dropping, the touching, the pressing, the lifting, the moving, the dropping, the touching, the pressing, at whatever pace you happen to be walking at. So that's more of a slow pace, obviously. When you're walking at more of a normal pace, it's just touching, 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 or contact, 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 contact. So it depends like how much the mind is going to know specifically depends on the pace. But it's nice to have that very specific anchor so you really get a sense of what it is to have continuity of mindfulness. And then when you get distracted, then just accept it. So if there's a very interesting sound of a bird, then don't be afraid to, for that two, three seconds to really open completely to the sound of the cardinal. Hearing. It's just hearing being known. Liking. Ah. That's a mental quality. Now the mind's liking the sound of the cardinal. Oh, this is just liking being known. Wanting more of that. It's like this. Okay. Standing or lifting, moving, placing. Oh yeah. Lifting, moving, placing. And then something else. Maybe seeing. You know, oh, there's somebody. And then there's some emotional reaction to seeing that person. You notice that. You know, ooh, he or she's a little scary. (laughs) Whatever it is, you just notice the reaction or the response in the mind, and then you can come back. So that's more realistic, you know. In refined situations where there are fewer distractions, the situation is more neutral, you might more easily get continuity. Like you're in a hallway and there's no nothing else going on in that hallway or big open room, like here at Common Ground and you're doing walking practice. 
you might not have too many things pulling the attention away. But other places you might, and you just have to incorporate that into your practice. Yeah, say your name. I'm Jane. Jane. Well, I noticed when I'm meditating here, even though like, in my mind, I like I'll keep, like tonight, I, like, I nodded off like three times, and I keep, and I tried to say with alert, relax, or tonight I tried the knowing, releasing, and, and sort of, well, and not, and it's just, but it's happened, and you start over, and that's tired. Yeah. We're falling asleep is a formidable, um, challenge to so many of our practices and probably anybody who sticks with this practice over time there will be periods of time when sleepiness and unconsciousness will be a very significant obstacle to continuing the practice so we just want to be respectful and this has this means i'm not talking about people who aren't getting enough sleep so this is for somebody who's getting plenty of sleep if you're not getting plenty of sleep, you know already know what to do, right? So, assuming you're getting plenty of sleep, you know, and you're healthy, and you're falling asleep a lot in practice, then it's a subtle imbalance. Generally, for most people, they get, over time, good at tranquility. But it's a little bit more subtle and difficult to maintain the brightness in the mind. Because mostly... Fear makes us bright. We're interested, you know, because we care what people think about us. And we care about, you know, surviving in life, socially, physically, in all, in all ways. So then we learn meditation, and we emphasize, usually in the beginning, tranquilizing the mind. Because it's important to learn how to tranquilize. But we just overdo it. I mean, you can't actually have too much tranquility. But it gets out of balance with the interest. Because most of our interest was fear-based, and we start getting skillful at abandoning the fear-based interests. Interest, you know, like that vigilance, but it's fear-based. So we, we let go of it. So that now there's nothing keeping the mind awake, because we're not afraid anymore. We've learned, like, that's too heavy to carry. So we put it down, and all we have is tranquility. So we just start nodding off. And you get really experienced meditators who just are doing that a lot of the time. Because they haven't had somebody say to them, say, the practice is about this balance between interest and relaxation. And remember in the RAIN acronym, recognizing is an energizing part, acceptance is a tranquilizing part, interest is an energizing part, non-attachment is a relaxing part, right? So the RAIN acronym has energizing qualities to it, and tranquilizing qualities. So if you're getting too much tranquility, you need to emphasize the R and the I. Like, is your mind actually recognizing the sensations of the breath? Is it interested in the sensations? And not just at the beginning of the in-breath, but is that interest and that recognition of the physicality of breathing in sustaining all the way through from the very first moment of the in-breath? all the way to the last instant of the in-breath. You can ask yourself that. Honey, can I notice the very beginning, the middle, and the end of the in-breath? So you challenge the mind. And the more you make the mind work, the more alert. So the more you ask it to see, 
the more alert, the more bright it gets. Now, if you're already hypervigilant, this will make you restless. You need more of the acceptance and the non-attachment, the letting things be, to help settle the body and mind down. So it's different medicine for different people. Yeah. Katie, um, I'm trying this out because I have ADD, and I'm used, to, I'm used to spending my entire day with my mind just ricocheting all over the place and getting to the end of my day and realizing I haven't done anything. And already since I've been trying this, I find that I have like spontaneous moments during the day where I say to myself, okay, I'm here, I'm going to think about breathing for a second, and then I say to myself, what do I want to be doing? And every time I manage to redirect myself or, or have a moment where I think, okay, I'm here, what am I doing? I'm very like, happy and excited about it because that's not something I ever managed to do normally. Yeah. So um, I'm really happy about it. And I'm also feeling like I'm learning to be slightly more compassionate about the way my mind is because normally I get really frustrated with this. Like, you know, I can't just concentrate on things that other people can but now I'm just sort of, like, I sort of think of it like hurting a flock of sheep, like, yeah, that's a beautiful image, actually. Yeah, I'm like, it's not personal, the sheep just got to wander. Just yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, like, this is really helpful, and I'm kind of, like, excited. Like, now you're talking about continuity, I'm like, I can do this for more than one moment at a time. It's going to be great. <laughs> Thanks for that beautiful testimonial. To the gate. Yeah, we all want to clap. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Did you have a thought? Yeah, so uh, you talked about distractions, right? So there are some times when uh, it's better to find a solution for distractions. For example, you talked about ice cream. Mm-hmm. So that moment I know that I'm hungry. So if I just let it go, I'll be, you know, I'll be hungry. I'll still be hungry. So. Better to eat. And there are some sometimes when you hear he said if you're hungry it's better to eat. <laughs> when you can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or if you have a pain in the knee, it's, you know, it's, it's a good idea to take a medicine or so it's better to find a solution sometimes. And sometimes there are distractions like you're in a movie or you're scared, you know, then you just wait for it to pass. How do you differentiate? Right. You might remember, but there's this wonderful little story, and I think it might go all the way back to the time of the Buddha, but it's an ancient meditation story or teaching story about, like, and I might have even already mentioned it, but, you know, the world is filled with sharp objects, so the question is, what do we do? Do we cover the earth in leather, or do we make a pair of shoes? And this is the, in our life, there's all these different things that arise. There's hunger, and irritation, and impatience, and being too warm and too cold and sleepy and restless. And if we always feel like I have to change the external world to deal with the uneasiness of my heart, it takes up our whole life. And then in the end, before we die, are we any better off than when we were born? No, because we've been constantly trying to take care of what's ever up for us. So this practice, I mean, we have to do that to some extent. When the knee hurts, we have to stretch the leg out. When we're hungry, we have to feed ourselves. So the Buddha, nobody's saying that we shouldn't uh, take care of the appropriate desires that come up. But as we're taking care of them, first we have to understand that it doesn't lead anywhere. I mean, it, 
taking care of business isn't bad, but it doesn't lead to lasting happiness. You're just paying the bills. You're just getting through the week, getting through the year, and then there's always another day. You clean the house, but then you're going to have to clean it again. You know, you use the toilet, but then tomorrow you're going to have to use it again, or later in the day you're going to have to use it again. Feed the body, but then you have to do it again. It doesn't actually... Gratifying desire does not lead to the end of desire. Right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have any desires because we would have gratified them. So the question, what leads to the end of desire? The tension around desire, the fear around desire. What leads to that? And that's understanding. So we need a two-prong approach. One is, to some degree, deal appropriately with the desires that you have. But as you're taking care of those basic desires that you need to address, don't assume it's going to deliver, any of them are going to deliver lasting happiness, because they don't. That's what life teaches us. If you pay attention, gratifying desire doesn't lead to lasting happiness. Whatever desire you might have, like finding a partner, for example. Anybody here who's had a partnership, marriage, will tell you that it may be a great thing, or maybe for you it was a terrible thing, but in any case, it didn't provide lasting happiness. That's not what relationships do. They can be quite functional and wonderful, but they don't give you lasting, perfect happiness. And anything in life is true. So then we want a, what we call spiritual practice to learn how to be happy no matter the conditions. That's, what's, that's the difference between worldly strategies, which are important and relevant, and spiritual strategies which are about a happiness or a freedom or a release that's unconditioned, not about the particular circumstances of our lives. So when we do our formal sit, we're practicing being free regardless of whether I'm cold or hot, whether my mind is restless or calm or sleepy, whether I have a lot of power and wealth or whether I'm a marginalized, oppressed person. Is there a way to be free, alive and free, in the circumstances I find myself self in? So we need both. And it's a really good point you brought up, because some people misunderstand spiritual life as saying, don't worry about these other things. But the Buddha would say, bring your attention to them just enough. That's what he meant by the middle way. Don't neglect the needs of the body. Don't neglect the needs of being a social human being. You know, like, whether you're a monk or a nun or living as a layperson, we are a social being. We need to deal with those social needs. We need to belong in a community. And if you look at healthy monastic settings, they may be celibate, but they have a very strong, loving, I mean, if it's going to work for them, community, in order to take care of those very social needs that human beings have, let alone the physical needs of the body. So we need to address those things, but we don't want to consume ourselves with addressing them. We want to have enough space in our life to look at a freedom that's unconditioned. Time for maybe one more comment. Yeah, say your name. Ready? Um, you mentioned the shoe analogy the last time I was here, and I had this question um, in between, which is, if you make a pair of shoes to protect yourself from the sharp and hooky things on the ground. Does that mean that you wear the shoes all the time and you never feel 
Metaphors are a little funny that way, because <laughs> the objects, like the, in, in Buddhist terms, the objects that are poking your foot, it's not moss and beautiful river stones and, you know, different things like that. They're what we call defilements. So, in, uh, there really, there are what we call skillful and unskillful qualities of mind. And unskillful qualities of mind are uh, fear and jealousy and the identification with the fear and the jealousy so that fear arises and the mind takes it personally. That's the sharp stone. Uh, greed arises and the mind takes it personally. Rage arises and the mind takes it personally. So what do we do with those sharp stones? Well, we develop wisdom. So wisdom is the non-identification with the fear, with the jealousy, with the greed, with the rage. That still may get triggered, but the mind understands it's just an emotion being known. So it's not getting lost in that strong state. You still know it. In fact, you're intimate with the moss and the stones, but you're just not identifying with it. So the leather, see it's not a perfect metaphor. There is no simile that's perfect. The leather is just the non-identification, but the non-identification doesn't mean you're distant from it. The only way to be non-identified is to really know that it's impersonal, because it's wisdom, it's not distance that makes it impersonal. It's like, oh yeah, this thought, this jealous thought, it's nature, it's not me. It's a habit of the mind, it's an impersonal habit of the mind to be jealous when this situation is like this. I don't have to take it personally. I don't have to get tight when that happens. I mean, I can't tell you, I'm 30 years into the practice, but all kinds of what we would call unwholesome, primitive emotions get triggered in me. Lust, fear, insecurity. But I'm much better not taking them personally. And so they don't really have a big life. They don't get traction, so to speak. But doesn't mean that they're not there, that they can't get triggered. They can get triggered. But it's okay, because now the mind has some skill. That's the leather, that's the pair of moccasins or whatever. So it's 9 o'clock, we need to leave it here. Just Let's take just a few seconds, let go of the words, feel the body sitting, just enough to take a breath together. Appreciate the space and the mind. Thanks everyone for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.